1: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our conversation with Jerry Seib. He is the executive Washington editor for The Wall Street Journal. Later this summer, his new book, We Should Have Seen It Coming. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, Jerry Seib, let's talk politics. And we're still about two months from the convention, several more months before the election. But according to one of the latest national surveys, Joe Biden is up 14 points over President Trump in the New York Times-Siena College survey. One of the lessons, of course, from 2016, tell me what the battleground states are doing. So in those polls, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona and Wisconsin, Joe Biden is also ahead. So at this moment in the campaign, give us your snapshot. Where are we?
2: Well, you know, I talked to a Democratic analyst um, who just told me before we you and I started talking that if the election were held today, there is no doubt Joe Biden would win hands down. But, and unfortunately, from the Democrats' point of view, the election is not being held today. So I think there are two thoughts that come to mind. One is that four months represents a lifetime in politics today, and particularly in the politics of Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, think of the things that have happened over the last four months that none of us could have possibly seen coming. And second, you know, this is a a story that's familiar at this stage the alternative to the incumbent always looks a little better than that alternative tends to look when you get closer at hand. And so, um, you know, when the when the election gets nearer, uh, every election that I can recall in recent memory um, closes down, it gets tighter, not not uh, looser at the end. So, you know, I don't know whether this is the high watermark for Joe Biden or not, but um, there's a long way to go. It's an uphill climb for Donald Trump. He's got a couple of big advantages. He's still got a a financial advantage he has raised a lot more cash although that financial advantage is narrowing he has a very robust um social media presence that the democrats can only envy at this point point. and there is still the possibility and i think this is a key of that v-shaped economic recovery which is to say a sharp bounce back from the coronavirus i think that looks a little less likely than it did two weeks ago but still if that happens i think it's a game changer and we'll see
1: And, of course, we are old enough to remember back in 1988 when then-Governor Michael Dukakis had a 17-point lead over George H.W. Bush, only to lose that election. Of course, that was 1988. This is 2020.
2: Right. But, Steve, you know, you and I, we both were around, and that's one of the elections I had in mind when I delivered my cautionary tale uh, in answer to the first question. You know, that seemed to be an insurmountable... Uh, Michael Dukakis' lead. I remember the jokes about the Dukakis campaign staff measuring the Oval Office for the drapes, um, and then it vanished, and it vanished fairly quickly. Um. George Bush just had to show that um, he was going to be a candidate that people could embrace, that um, he was both going to be the follow-on but also different from Ronald Reagan. And he did that at his convention, first of all, and then the game changed quickly. So that was in a less volatile time than we're living in right now, I would say. So if it could happen in 1988, nobody should think it can't happen in 2020. That's not a prediction. Again, that's a cautionary tale.
1: And, of course, this year, as you well know, the conventions, at least for the Democrats, will be very different. And you have to think that the Republicans are going to make some changes as well as they approach Jacksonville in late August.
2: Yeah, we've been talking here at the Journal about this a lot in the last couple of days. It's going to be totally different. You know, if you've been to lots of conventions, and for better or worse, I've been to a lot. There's no, there's no comparison between what happened then and what's going to happen. Now, the Democrats will barely have a convention. It will be a convention mostly in name. Um, and it'll be an acceptance speech and a lot of virtual party activity ha- that, that's conducted not in person but rather online. I think the Republicans will have much more of an in-person get-together in Jacksonville, but even there it's going to be different, and the actual nominating will happen in another city in Charlotte because that's where the convention was supposed to be. So there is no comparison between what conventions used to be and what they are now. I think the one thing that doesn't change is that for years and years, the most important part of a convention wasn't really the convention, but the acceptance speech and what kind of impression it leaves and what sort of um, voter reaction it produces. That's still going to be the case. So, whatever else happens in convention weeks, the Thursday night speech, first by Joe Biden and then by Donald Trump, those will still be important events.
1: Jerry Saab, give us your assessment three and a half years into his presidency how can we understand donald trump because he is clearly a very different type of person to have ever held this office
2: you know it's a complicated question because he's a complicated guy but i think basically he is somebody who um senses the grievances of the people in his base who has succeeded by telling them they are right about the political establishment that it's not had their interests at heart and that uh, he like his the people in his base um kind of uh, is kind of looked down upon by some people in the establishment and donald trump relishes that and he is basically a disruptor i think that's the most important word to keep in mind he did not come to this town or into 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 politics to carry on traditions he came to change them and i, I think about the very first uh, moment of the very first uh, republican presidential debate in 2016 when brett Baer of fox news said who on this stage Uh, will not commit to supporting the Republican nominee at the end of this process, regardless of who it is. And Donald Trump's hand was the only one that went up. And so that tells you that he said the establishment is broken. The status quo doesn't work for a lot of people, including for me. And I'm here to change it, not to um, basically pay reverence to it. And that's the way he's carried that out. It's, it's, uh, It's kind of a politics of grievance, I guess you might say, Um, But a lot of people who support him feel aggrieved, and he uh, personifies those feelings for them. He tells them those feelings are legitimate, and he sets out every day to act on them. Now, you can argue that he's not very uh, adept or efficient uh, or organized in acting on them, and that would be a fair criticism. But I think there's no doubt that he knows who he's speaking to, and he's much more interested in speaking to his base than in expanding that base. And that's the reason we're – looking at the kind of um, job approval rating in the mid-40s that he's always gotten.
1: To that point, a president seeking re-election, it's basically a referendum on his performance in office. After eight years in office, there's often that, that push for change, as we saw with Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. And yet, as you look at the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, he does not represent change
2: no he doesn't and in fact the the person in this race who's going to try hardest to be the change agent is actually going to be the incumbent ironically donald trump i mean he is basically saying that in four years i have shown that the establishment needs to be uh... upended that the institutions need to be reformed that the practices of washington need to be turned upside down and i haven't had time to complete that job yet but i'm still the agent of change who can do it and by the way joe biden four decades plus in Washington, is the guy who cannot be, by definition, a change agent because he's been part of this process. So you're right that that normally is the dynamic after eight years of an incumbent. This is different. Everything about Donald Trump is different. And the incumbent, the guy who's in office, will be the one arguing the hardest and, and with some credibility that he's still the agent of change, which is uh, kind of you know, baffling under normal circumstances, but it's kind of the story of 2020.
1: And when you talk to those Democratic strategists and you discuss the Joe Biden campaign, he's been somewhat invisible. I mean, let's face it, he's had uh, limited public appearances. He's been doing some uh, media appearances, but not a lot of interviews, no press conferences for the last couple of months. So what's the strategy?
2: Well, there's some disagreement about that among Democrats. There's a very strong feeling among some in the Biden campaign and in the party that the most important thing for them to do is to make sure this remains a referendum on donald trump that donald trump defeats himself uh, as effectively as joe biden can defeat him there's another school of thought in the party that that's not sufficient that that's a good starting point but it can't be the ending point for a a presidential campaign and there needs to be a clear message particularly a clear economic message that people can understand and that former vice president biden is going to have to spend more time laying out a message not just um being the opposite of Donald Trump in demeanor. And so I think that is a an issue yet to be resolved um because I think there is um there is a, a feeling that as long as this is a referendum on the incumbent let's just stay out of his way.
1: So the polls that you're looking at right now my sense is you're wary about those numbers. I'm wary. I,
2: I am um for a couple of reasons one as I said you know um, it's early. Um, this is the season of maximum uh, discontent with Donald Trump in some ways, uh, because there is a, you know, an X factor in polling that everybody, in, including us at The Wall Street Journal, have grappled to come to terms with, which is, is there still a hidden Trump vote out there? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that, uh, I'm sure there is. I'm not sure how big it is, uh, the vote that doesn't show up uh, in the polls. Um and I think also because i mean let's let's not forget that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes in uh, two thousand and sixteen and still lost the presidential election so um there is a there there would have to be some considerable cratering uh, by the Biden campaign before that became a realistic scenario, but I think um, long way to go down this road
1: let's talk about your book. We should have seen it coming. It will be released in late august and You're talking about the rise, the climax and the decline of a great political movement. How so?
2: Well, I think, you know, I got to I got to town um, to Washington in in uh, 1980, uh, which happens to be the year that Jimmy Carter lost the presidency to Ronald Reagan and a conservative um, revolution occurred. And I think the conservative movement was for years after that, the most important, the most interesting political movement in the country. Um, And it has uh, it it changed politics. It changed the debate. It moved the country to the right. And over the arc of the last four decades, I think it's arguably the most important political movement of our times. And then a funny thing happened in 2016. Donald Trump, who's not really a conservative, um, he's a populist. uh, He's a pragmatist. He's a nationalist. He's not really a classic conservative by anybody's definition, um, moved in and took over the republican party which had been the reagan conservative party for four decades and i think the way that happened is a a fascinating tale so that's what i try to tell and you know the title of the book sort of gives you the bottom line of the analysis which is we should have seen it coming um you know there were lots of signs over the preceding say twenty years that there was a populist movement within the republican party that was gaining strength Um, The party itself was changing, was becoming more blue-collar, more uh, rural and Midwestern and less coastal. Um, And, you know, you had Pat Buchanan, you had Ross Perot, you had Sarah Palin, you had the Tea Party, all of which basically were, in one way or another, precursors to Donald Trump. And so I think there was a tendency to dismiss those movements as being minority or even fringe movements, but in fact, they were signaling a big change within the heart of the conservative movement.
1: And of course, the subtitle of the book, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to a Political Revolution. Let's go back to the West Front of the Capitol, January 1981, Ronald Reagan calling government the problem, and then he had this to say.
3: We are a nation that has a government, not the other way around. And this makes us special among the nations of the earth. Our government has no power except that granted it by the people. It is time to check and reverse the growth of government which shows signs of having grown beyond the consent of the governed. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. All of, us, all of us need to be reminded that the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government.
1: That from January 1981. And Jerry Saib, how significant was the election of Ronald Reagan in America's history?
2: Well, I think it was probably the most significant one since 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt took over, and they kind of were bookends. The Roosevelt election uh, marked the beginning of the New Deal and the rise of liberal political power, um, which was the dominant force really um, within the national body politic until 1980, when Ronald Reagan came in and and reversed the field and and made conservatism the the dominant, or at least the rising power within the national political scene. So I think that's where you have to put the 1980 election. And in some ways, it was uh, the product of a feeling that Roosevelt New Deal liberalism had kind of become exhausted. You know, it was a year, it, it came a year after 1979, which I think is the real starting point for the Reagan revolution, when uh, you know, had you had stagflation, really uh, very dire economic uh, conditions in the country in many ways. You had gas lines. You had the uh, inability of a, a Carter administration to really cope with those things. You had the president make what was famously known as the Malay speech, in which he essentially said the country had lost its way, and it was the result of the people themselves. And all that opened the way. Uh, for Ronald Reagan, particularly when 1979 ended with the uh, taking of uh, hostages at the U.S. embassy in Tehran, and I think people had a feeling the wheels were coming off the cart, the liberal um, establishment had run out of gas, literally and figuratively, and it was time for something different. And so I think the um, the 1980 election basically put a period at the end of one part of American political history and started another one.
1: We're talking with Jerry Seib, the executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. And, of course, after the election of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, 12 years of Republicans in the White House, we saw the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. In his midterm election in 1994, an upstart in the House of Representatives, at the time the House Republican whip, Newt Gingrich, presenting what he called a contract with America. In September of 1994, on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, he had this to say.
4: You start with this notion that this is not just a political event, but this is an effort to capture symbolically by standing on the Capitol steps and having over 300 incumbents and candidates say in very specific language, if you give us control of the House, if you elect us, here is what we will do, beginning with the passage of the Shays Act to apply to the Congress every law which applies to the rest of the country. So that literally people will be able to take the ad out of TV Guide, on the, the October 27th edition, a month after the event, but two weeks before the election. They'll be able to tear out that full page. They'll be able to keep it. And on January 3rd, they'll tune into C-SPAN, and within an hour or two, they'll know either these guys are different and they're keeping their word and it's real, or it's politics as usual. Now, we believe so deeply that we can deliver something that is very different that we are prepared to be very specific about what we're doing.
1: That from September of 1994, and Jerry Sy, both in politics and in personality, he represented a real change from his predecessor, Bob Michael, who was much more of a mainstream Republican, much more like a Chamber of Commerce Republican, not an ideologue.
2: Yeah, that was a good plug for C-SPAN there, by the way. Um, We would like to do that
1: from time to time. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Uh, You know, I think the... um, the, the move from Bob Michael to Newt Gingrich was a really um, jarring uh, illustration of not just the ideological change that Gingrich brought um, to the congressional wing of the Republican Party, but the generational change. You know, Bob Michael, World War II veteran, very much of the generation of Republicans who were used to being in the minority and who were fairly genteel about it um and there was a kind of like have your debate and then let's all have a drink at the end of the day feeling about the way the two parties worked in congress and newt gingrich arrived to say no we're not doing it that way anymore we're not going to be the minority party anymore we are now going to be the majority party which sounds simple now but at the time it was a fairly audacious promise and we're going to be much more combative we're not here to uh, get along and go along. we're here to fight, and that was a big change in both tone um, and in character of the of the party in some ways for the better in many ways for the worse, probably. Um, but it worked, and you know a lot of what substantively um, what Newt Gingrich offered in that contract with America on the Capitol Steps on the day that we just heard about was really taken out of the Reagan playbook. Um, a lot of the ideas that were in that contract with America you could trace back to specific passages of speeches. Ronald Reagan had made, and so it really made Newt Gingrich the philosophical heir to Ronald Reagan, but somebody who operated in a much different style and was much more combative and much more uh, ready to uh, engage in the political trenches and not sort of rise above them.
1: We look forward to reading your book. It will be coming out in late August. We should have seen it coming and it's it seems as if there There is a parallel track for the Republican Party, whether it's Newt Gingrich or George W. Bush's election in 2000, and then this populist revolution that you say was brewing, people like Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, the Tea Party. And then in 2008, the selection of Sarah Palin. From the acceptance speech, this is what she said.
4: I had the privilege of living most of my life in a small town. I was just your average hockey mom and signed up for the PTA. PTA. I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull, lipstick.
1: <laughs> Jerry Seib, how does Sarah Palin fit into all of this?
2: Well, you know, I, I should have ticked her off on the list of things that uh, should have tipped us off to the fact that a Donald Trump was coming. Because she was, in many ways, the precursor uh, to, to Donald Trump and non-professional kind of um, uh, way out of the political mainstream in the sense of background and personality. Um, and Steve Bannon, who was uh, one of Donald Trump's you know, chief political advisors in 2016, when I talked to him, he pointed specifically back to the Palin campaign and said that showed us that this was possible and showed us how this happened. And he pointed out, which is true, that though Sarah Palin came to be seen as essentially a political failure in many ways, at the beginning, at that speech that we just heard, and in the uh, campaign that followed for the next month or so, she was a complete political sensation. She was filling up a football stadium, she was filling up auditoriums, she was creating real excitement with a populist message and It was a populist message that was actually quite different from the one that John McCain, the, the nominee himself was was offering, uh, or at least in some ways was different. Um, And it really struck a chord. And then she didn't have the political chops really to carry it forward. And I think uh, it became um, the the, the, uh, McCain campaign came to see the Palin uh, vice presidency as a bit of an embarrassment. But she had her finger on something and we saw a lot more of it eight years later.
1: And as we talked about change elections, certainly 2008 was a change from the the eight years of George W. Bush, Barack Obama easily winning. And so in February of 2009 at the CPAC conference here in Washington, D.C., radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh basically outlining what it means to be a conservative with the Democrats in the White House. Here's what he said. I want to
0: tell you who we all are in this room. I want to tell you who conservatives are. We conservatives have not done a good enough job of just laying out basically who we are because we make the mistake of assuming that people know. What they know is largely incorrect based on the way we are portrayed in pop culture, in the drive-by media, uh, by the Democrat Party. Let me tell you who we conservatives are. We love people. When we look out over the United States of America, when we are anywhere, when we see a group of people such as this or anywhere, we see Americans. We see human beings. We don't see groups. We don't see victims. We don't see people we want to exploit. What we see, what we see is potential. We do not look out across the country and see the average American, the person that makes this country work, we do not see that person with contempt. We don't think that person doesn't have what it takes. We believe that person can be the best he or she wants to be if certain things are just removed from their path, like onerous taxes, regulations, and too much government.
1: That from February of 2009, and Jerry Seib, apply that to where we are today with the demonstrations recently over the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, an economic collapse that seems to uh, be hurting so many Americans, and of course this pandemic.
2: Well, I think first of all you hear in those words a real kind of populist theme, and you know that's really what developed uh, in the in the ensuing years, and so it was kind of on display there. Uh, and secondly, I think you heard. Um, somebody trying to address a frequent criticism of conservatives over the years. And I think a a justifiable one, which is that they were way better at explaining what they were against than what they were for. And that, that was an interesting attempt to say, here's what we're for. I I do think that, you know, if you think about the unrest today and, and there are a lot of ways to, to characterize it, but think about precursors of today's unrest and the, both the tea party movement and Uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement um, in recent years, and you saw a kind of a dissatisfaction uh, uh, below the establishment level at the establishment, a kind of a feeling that the elites had lost trust with uh, us, had lost uh, touch with us, that we have lost our faith in them, and the institutions are working for other people, but they're not working for me anymore. And that is a common thread through a lot of the unrest and dissatisfaction and frankly, the political estrangement that we've seen over the last uh, decade or so. And you see it today on the streets in some ways in a completely different form than the Tea Party, but really with sort of similar roots, I think, and similar uh, feelings of estrangement from the system, if you will. And that's what Donald Trump tapped into to some extent. And um, we've seen it, you know, in, in many, take many forms in recent years.
1: I just wrote down the three E words that you just mentioned, elites, establishment and estrangement from the system. And I'm wondering if these remarks by Hillary Clinton in September of 2016 really galvanized the right with her campaign. Let's listen. We are living in a volatile political environment.
2: You know, to just be grossly generalistic. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. (laughs) Right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that. And he has lifted them up.
1: And of course, Jerry Seib, if you listen to Fox News or conservative uh, columnists, they hammered her on this issue for the rest of the campaign.
2: Well, yeah, and it was if you probably if you want to point to one moment in which I think she lost the election, that might have been it, because it was a a way of saying um, to to Trump supporters, um, not I understand your uh, dissatisfaction, but rather uh you're you know you're wrong to feel that way and you're a morally inferior person and I think that, you know, once that happens you've locked in the Trump base. And you know, one of the things to keep in mind about um twenty sixteen is that you know Hillary Clinton lost that election as much as Donald Trump won it. Uh, somebody reminded me today that fifty four percent of Americans didn't want Donald Trump to be their president. That's the number of people who voted for Hillary Clinton and third party and independent candidates. And so you know, in a way, I think Hillary Clinton did not have voters to drive away from her column, and yet, I think she did it in some ways and one of the things that's interesting about to go back to where we started about the current election is that Joe Biden, whatever his pluses or minuses his merits and demerits, he does not attract nearly that kind of intense feeling of estrangement and dis- and, and and dislike um, you know there was a in our polling the the number of people who said they strongly disapproved of Hillary Clinton was twice as high then as it is for Joe Biden now. So that's not there this time around. And I think that's um, that's a factor that has got
1: to make Democrats feel better right now. So no hard edges for Joe Biden.
2: Not really. No. And he's not. He's a he's a hard person to really dislike. I mean, obviously, some people do. But, um, you know, there was a kind of intense and sometimes visceral, dislike of Hillary Clinton um, on the part of a fairly wide swath of Americans. And that just isn't true of Joe Biden. That's not the way people look at him.
1: And of course, if there is a microcosm in all of this, and I love the headline from your column last month in The Wall Street Journal referring to Michigan, you're saying the state has nearly every ingredient going into the election stew. Can you explain?
2: Well, so first of all, it's, a, it's an important swing state, one that had been Democratic, that Donald Trump won in 2016, and the Democrats need to win back now. It has moved more Democratic since then and has a Democratic governor, who is now under consideration to be Joe Biden's running mate. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it has been hit very hard by the coronavirus, so it has all the pains, uh, you know, health-wise and, eco- and economic, that any state has in in very high measure. So you take all the combustible elements of 2020 and you roll them all together and you find them all in Michigan, which is why I think it's a really fascinating uh, battleground. And, and it usually is a battleground state, but I think it's also a kind of an exemplar this year of all the forces that are at work.
1: What prompted you to write the book and what surprised you the most in researching it?
2: Um, well, you know this it sort of tracks the arc of my uh, my own journalism career, as I said, and I was particularly interested in the 1979 thousand hundred and nine hundred and eighty period when uh, when it felt as if the earth moved and and it moved in a way that kind of um, remained in place to some extent for years and years afterwards and I think the um, the, the effect that had on the go- on the country and on the on the politics of the country were really interesting to me. Um, and I also felt that it was important to understand that, to uh, try to explain the Donald Trump phenomenon. I mean, you, you know, you can't really know where we are and you, unless you know where we came from. And um, I just thought it would be interesting to explore that period. I wasn't sure um, what my bottom line conclusion would be, but then ultimately the bottom line that I guess I reached is reflected in the title of the book, which is we should have seen it coming. You know, you should have seen, we should have seen. The, the elements of the Trump phenomenon falling into place for years. And I think many of us, and I certainly see myself in this category, either overlooked them or rationalized them away as being marginal developments. Well, in fact, they told us a lot, and it's easier to see in retrospect uh, than it was at the time.
1: And as you know, the Drudge Report in the last couple of months has compared Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump in terms of polling numbers. Jimmy Carter was a one-term president, as was George H.W. Bush. Does it feel like that right now or is this a very different campaign?
2: Well, I'll tell you the one way it feels like the Carter area, which is reflected in a question we asked in our last Wall Street Journal NBC News poll a few weeks ago. And we asked people whether they thought the country was in control or was uh, spinning out of control. And 80 percent of people said they thought the country was out of control. Uh, Now, that was in the middle of the coronavirus problem and at the very beginning of the George Floyd unrest. But still, that's a stunning number and that's what makes me think that maybe there are some parallels between 1979-80 and 2020, which is I think the ultimate undoing of Jimmy Carter was people's feeling that things had just gone out of control, as I said earlier, that the wheels were falling off the cart and they just wanted to do something different. And I think if there's a a potential Achilles heel for Donald Trump, it really lies there uh, more than in any particular issue. It's just a feeling that enough. This is just out of control. Um, maybe, maybe he will change that between now and the election, and maybe being the strong man is the way to say I'm the person to bring control back. But there is a certain parallel between the climate today and the Jimmy Carter days in that sense.
1: And finally, how significant will Joe Biden's pick for a running mate be?
2: I think it's potentially the most important one of, uh, of our time. It just simply because Joe Biden's 77 years old today, he'll be 78 years old if he wins and when he takes office next January, um, people will look at this vice president much more as a potential follow-on president, president than um, any we've ever known. And I think there's no escaping the fact that he will have to make people comfortable with the fact that um, there's somebody there that they that they are happy to have take over or to be his successor if he chooses only to serve one term. I mean, these are just these are just dynamics that don't normally come into play, but they're right there, and they can't be avoided this time.
1: Jerry Seib is the executive Washington editor for The Wall Street Journal, former bureau chief, and his new book, We Should Have Seen It Coming, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to a Political Revolution. When can our listeners purchase it?
2: Uh, published on August 25th, so the week of the Republican convention, not by coincidence.
1: Jerry Seib. Thanks for joining us here on C-SPAN and on our podcast, The Weekly.
2: Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it.
1: I'm Steve Scully. A reminder, this podcast is available on our website at cspan.org slash podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. We thank you for listening.